You are listening to the First Baptist Jinx podcast. To learn more about FBC Jinx, including our gathering times, visit us online at fbcjinx.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Cody Brumley. Well, hello uh, to those that are joining us in Overflow, to those joining us online, and uh, hello, church family. Uh, it is... Um, it is good to be here. I am here today uh, by the good hand of God on my life, my family's life, uh, and because a, a transition team has come around, uh, your senior pastor, Rick Fry, and extended an invite to me to be the next lead pastor. So what I want to do today is what pastors are supposed to do. I want to I get into the word of God. Whenever we started this conversation about a transition of leadership, my instinct was to run here. So I did about a two-week sprint through Scripture and found about 13 different leadership transitions that take place in Scripture because I wanted to know everything I could about how God cared for his people in times of transition. And there was one that stood out. We find it in Ezra. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Ezra. And this one caught my, caught my attention. You see, we, where we land here, God's been really faithful to his people. In fact, God had given a promise to Abraham that he'd be a family, and God kept that promise. And then God saved that family into Egypt through Joseph, and then God saved that family, which is now a nation, out of Egypt through Moses and into the promised land through Joshua. And under the judges, they function as a nation. And then under the kings, they function as a kingdom. And then they function as a kingdom divided, and then the kingdom fallen. Why? Because God keeps his promises. God promised when they sought him, he would provide and protect and supply them. And when they rejected him, he would correct and discipline them. And their rejection of God has led to them with both of their capital cities destroyed. The temple that symbolized and was the presence of God among them has been demolished. And they were led out of Jerusalem and into Babylonia under Babylon rule. But they were not led alone. But they'd been taken back into slavery. They were also sent with Jeremiah, a prophet from the Lord. We see in Jeremiah chapter 29 that they went into slavery, into exile with the hope. 29 verse 10. It's actually right in your Bible if you're looking for Jeremiah. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, it's not like in perfect chronological order. All right, So it's in segments that are in order. So Jeremiah happened before Ezra. Verse 10 says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. They went into exile and knew we'll be here 70 years, but we have a faithful God who's going to keep his promise, and he will bring us back. And if for a moment you're like, so Arkansas was exiled. That's not where we're headed. So, um, so that's, God's, that's God's promise to them. So they're there, and they're... In exile, almost 70 years have passed in Babylon falls to Persian rule. And now there's a man named Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, who steps up. Now Cyrus' name is familiar because 150 years before he takes the throne, Isaiah, a prophet to God's people, had said God will use his servant, Cyrus, and bring all kingdoms under him, and that God would use him to glorify himself by bringing his people back to Jerusalem and by laying the foundations of the temple. That was going to happen under Cyrus, and suddenly God has orchestrated Cyrus to be on the throne. And what does Cyrus do in Ezra chapter 1? He appoints two leaders of God's people, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Jeshua was the son of Levi, which means that he was uh, of that tribe, so he was responsible for what happened in the temple, but Zerubbabel was the leader. 
Zerubbabel was the appointed man who was to lead the exiles back to Jerusalem and do the work of rebuilding the temple and establishing the worship of the true God again. Zerubbabel was appointed by, by Cyrus and really by God to lead God's people back. And I love and admire the leader Zerubbabel. And not just because of his name. Like, it's a really cool name. Some of y'all know our backstory. Like, I actually made a pitch for my son to be named Zerubbabel. Um, because Zerubbabel Brumley just pops, right? Um, and uh, I got vetoed on that. And so I don't have a son named Zerubbabel. So if you don't know me, you're like, well, at least his wife is intelligent. Um, so that's good. Uh, and that's true. So I, I, I love him because I love this leader who's appointed to leadership. And he steps up and says, I've got a vision, I've got a calling, this is what we're gonna do. We will relocate 50,000 people. We will build a new place of worship. We will be the people of God that God has demanded that we should be for him. That's what we will do. And he sought through to completion. He faced all kinds of obstacles along the way. He actually faced one of the key obstacles that every new leader faces. And in Ezra chapter three, you see first they, they get there and they worship. He builds the altar first because you worship before you work. And so he builds the altar, they worship, then they get to work. They finally lay the foundations of the temple. And it says that they celebrate. They say the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever for Israel. And while they're celebrating, there's a noise of weeping that mixes with it. Why? Because there's this group of people that are so excited about the new thing that God has done. And then at the very same time, at the very same time, there's weeping from the people. Thank you. At the very same time, there's weeping from the people who'd been there before and who thought, this just isn't like it used to be. So in Ezra 3, there's this moment, and you can't tell who's who. Who's excited about the new thing? Who's just sad that this just isn't the way it used to be? And what Zerubbabel does is he leads through it. Why? Because there's a more important work that God is doing than that. And so he leads them through it. And then sabotage happens from inside. Oppression happens from outside. And guess what? He continues to lead his people to do the work of God. And you get to Ezra 6, and they complete the temple. They do what God sent them there to do. And verse 19 is where we're going to start our text for the day. And 619 says, On the 14th day of the first month, the return to exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. Listen to this. It was eaten by the people of Israel who returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So God completes the work and they celebrate. This is a beautiful and wonderful moment of what the leader had accomplished, what the people had accomplished. And you get to 7, verse 1. Look down at verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 1. It says this. Now after this. Let those words sink in, because this is what caught my heart when I was reading through these, these texts. Now after this. Because that's what's, that was what went through my head whenever Rick started to talk to me about a transition. Here's a leader that was appointed to lead this people. And he said, if I lead this people, we will relocate. We will build a new place of worship. We will fill that with the kind of people that God has called us to be and that this city needs us to be. And we will see God move. And we did. And it has been good. Now, after this, what happens after a leader like this? What happens after a movement like this? What happens after the hand of God completes a work like this? 
And we get so much hope and encouragement. Romans 15.4 says that we study these scriptures because they give us instruction and they give us encouragement and endurance towards hope. The reason we read stories like this is it helps us know exactly what God's going to do, the kind of God that he is, what he's going to do in the future. So what happens after this? For them, after this is 57 years. The temple's completed. In 515 BC, it's 458 BC. So there's been a people that were saved to Jerusalem. They built the temple. They're living there for 57 years, worshiping in the temple. What we know is not all of the exiles went back. There's still exiles that are in Babylonia under Persian rule. We know that because Haman wants to demolish all of the Jews that are there, and God raises up Esther to save them. And so there's an oppressed people, a group of exiles still living here, not in Jerusalem. And what does God do next? Well, next, Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes, takes the throne. And we meet him in verse 11. We have a copy of a letter that he gives to Ezra. Chapter 7, verse 11. This is the copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes of Israel. Here's the letter. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. So suddenly, here's the ruling power authority of his day, the king of Persia, spontaneously moved to say, I know that your temple's there. You know what? Any of you that belong to that God, you, you can go. And not only are you going, I'm sending you with Ezra. I'm appointing you a leader who's going to show you how to live as God's people are supposed to live. Why, why would someone do that? Verse 23 gives us his reason. Later in his letter, he tells us, Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. So somewhere, somewhere he had heard stories of their God. I don't know, maybe it was bedtime stories with Esther. I don't know, right? And she's like, you know what? You might be king one day. Let me read you Exodus. Let me tell you what happens whenever the ruling power of the day is like, no, you don't get to go worship your God. And suddenly he's like, I'm king. Hey, those people are slaves in my kingdom. Those people are slaves in my kingdom. You should go. Go worship your God. And you know what he says in here? He's like, don't just go. Take whatever you need from my treasury. Here's all the gold. Here's the silver. Here's the food. Here's every, just go and do exactly what your God tells you to do. And Ezra sees it for exactly what it is. We get Ezra's response to the letter in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and extend to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. You see, what happens after this? God moves for his people. That's what God's always done. God moves in ways that we could not plan, that we could not strategize, that we could not force. The hand of God moves as God wills to accomplish his will, and it's incredible. God moves for his people still. Now, even though God moved for his people, his people have to move. So the, the way has been paved. Ezra, you are no longer a student. You are now the leader. Go and lead these people. That's what he does in chapter 8. Chapter 8, 1 through 14 are the people that he gathers. You get to verse 15. I gather them to the river. Come and gather at the river, says point of grace. 
If you know, thanks. Um, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days as I reviewed the people and the priests, and I found that none, I found there none of the sons of Levi. We can't glance over that. The sons of Levi were appointed by God to be the ones who ministered in the house of the Lord. Their birthright, the thing they were saved to do, made to do, born to do by the hand of God, was only accomplished in the temple. And the temple stands in Jerusalem, and they are living in Babylonia. And they freely can go do what they were made to do, and they don't show up. What an incredible contrast to the king of Persia. A king who by all accounts is an unbeliever says, I heard about this God. I don't know anything, but I know if he's your God, you better live by what he says. And then you get the very people that know God's laws and they say, I know we have the opportunity to do what we are saved and born and made to do, but I'm actually just really comfortable being Persian. Too often that has been true of us. Too often that's true of my own heart. God has saved me and made me to do an incredible work, to be a part of this. And sometimes I catch myself going, yeah, that's great. You know, but just being part of the world is pretty comfortable. And thankfully, Ezra does not leave them there. Ezra looks and says, they're not here. So he gathers leading men and men of insight, and he sends them with a message and says, we will not go to the house of the Lord without the ones that minister in the house of the Lord. And God's good hand is what verse 18 says, raises up for them a few hundred people that will go and serve. Thankfully, he called them out of their apathy, and they woke up and said, yes, I'm going to do what I was made to do. So they finally gather together. What's the first thing that's going to happen? Now, now the gang's all here. What do we do? Verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, and that we might humble ourselves before God to seek him for a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. The first thing they do is they pray and fast. And before you're like, Ezra is such a great spiritual leader. Look at him. He tells on himself in verse 22. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So before you're like, Ezra was so inspired, Ezra got them together and was like, oh, by the way, guys, um, we have no protection on a four-month journey with men, women, and children in a lot of the king's treasury, all the gold, silver, and goods. Uh, it's... Uh, it's just us and God. So before we go, maybe, maybe we should pray. So the first time I read this, I was like, way to go, Ezra. But then as I read this over and over, my heart was started to say, maybe this is what we need Christians' lives to look like a little more. Where we show up and we're like, hey, here's the deal. Here's what our God says about him, and we believe it, and we live this way. And we back ourselves into these corners by our statements about our God's character. And we say, yes, I have no hope. And if God doesn't show up for us, we lose. And I am fearless about it. I don't need to partner with anyone else. I don't need anything else because my God has shown he's enough. Maybe we need a little bit more. This is who God is. We're going to fast and pray because he's our only hope. And that's what they do. And look at verse 23. We fasted, we implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. You see, God didn't just listen because, because of their fasting and praying. Their fasting and praying 
was because God had already promised to listen. Back to, back to Jeremiah 29, right? We mentioned Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Jeremiah 29, 12, then you will call upon me. He just said, I will bring you out of captivity after 70 years because I have plans for you, and then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. You will seek me when you seek me with all your heart. What do we see in Ezra is a fulfilled prophecy. This is a man and a people who said, we are desperate for the Lord. We have no other hope but him. Total, wholehearted dependency on God. And when we seek God that way, he listens. You get to the end of chapter 8. Verse 31, it says, They departed from the river on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes on the way. They get there. Not a single person, not a bit of gold, silver, any item was lost. God provided the entire way because God doesn't just move for us. God moves with us. And that's what we have to have. And they get there, and they worship So they make sacrifices to God and offerings to God. Why? Because there's work to do, but we worship before we work. That's why we start the week on a Sunday. You wake up and you come and you worship and then you work, right? So they get there, they worship, and they say, let's go to work. Chapter 9, the work begins. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. They get there to do this incredible work, and they find out that sin is sitting in the camp. Now, we don't have time to fully break down the history of what's happened here, but if you remember Ezra chapter 6, I said that there was a people who came out of exile, but who joined them in the Passover feast? It says, everyone who separated themselves from the people of the lands and who wholeheartedly worshiped the Lord their God. So this isn't about exclusivity of marriage, right? There's, a, there's In church history, there's been times that people have said, well, okay, well, the, this is about ethnicities or backgrounds or races that shouldn't marry, and that is not true, and that is not biblical. This is about exclusivity of heart. What doesn't belong in our lives is an intermingling of God is just like any of the other gods or authorities in our life. That's what doesn't belong, and that's what had came into their homes, was, yes, we worship this God, but we can also worship all the other gods of the area. That's fine. And they become convicted of this. And when Ezra hears it, we see his response. And he's not responding to their, to their sin, it's to their faithlessness. That's what he calls it in verse 13, or I'm sorry, in verse 2. He says their faithlessness. But there's more bad news in verse 2. It says, in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. They get there to do the work, and what Ezra finds The ones that are supposed to be leading are the ones that have compromised the most. And it is heartbreaking how often that has been true of our church, the capital C church recently. And Ezra shows us a great way to handle it. Because whenever this is heard from Ezra, that there are people who should be leading, but their hearts are compromised, he doesn't question their God. He questions that leader's faithfulness to that God. He says, It's not God's problem. It's the fact that their faith didn't match the quality of their God. That's the issue. And so what does Ezra do? He doesn't point fingers. He doesn't write posts about it. He doesn't yell at people. He doesn't separate, you're in this camp and I'm in this camp. He doesn't do that. Verse 6, he says, God, I'm ashamed. First personal pronoun, I. 
And I blush to lift my face, personal pronoun, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. You get to the end of this in verse 15. He says, behold, we are before you in our guilt. None can stand before you because of this. Ezra as a leader hears this and his response is to say, God, I am heartbroken because we are your people and we are sinning. That's his response. Be heartbroken before God that God's people would fall short of being everything he saved them to be. And he calls it what it is. There's no excuse for their action. There's no justification. There's no, he just says, we are guilty. He wasn't the one that did it, but he owned it. We are guilty. But here's the beauty of chapter 9. When God works in you, it is not just to reveal guilt. But he has to do that. Guilt is one side of a tunnel. He has to bring you to that side of a tunnel so you say, wait, there's no way out. I am guilty. And only when you're on this side of a tunnel do you see the brightness of this side. Only when you enter here do you see hope. When God works in you, he reveals guilt and he reveals his goodness. Look at chapter eight, I'm sorry, verse eight of chapter nine. But now for a brief moment, Ezra says, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery for we are slaves yet. Our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. He's extended to us a steadfast love. Look at verse 13. After all these things have come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, no excuses, these are ours, we did them. Our God, you have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and you've given us a remnant like this. When God works in us to reveal our guilt, he also reveals hope. He shows how good he is. That's the power that God has. So we need him to move for us. We need him to move with us and we need him to move in us. And after this, God is still doing it. God is still moving. But then God's people got to move. That's what chapter 10 is about. Chapter 10, verse 11, Ezra says, Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Ezra's heart may have broke for the sins of his people, but at the end of the, at the, end of the day, it's the sins of the people. I am responsible for this book to read me and reveal my guilt, reveal my hope, and I confess it to the Lord and I turn to him and say, God, I want to do your will. And guess what? So are you. A pastor, a group leader, staff, friend, they can't answer for you. Family, they can't answer for you. You have to see where you are guilty and immediately see where God's provided hope. And that's what they do. Ezra 10 ends with a list of the guilty people. End of book. Like, Cody, that's a terrible movie. Why would we end like that? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, Ezra was, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra was actually written with Nehemiah. It was one book combined. And so you have Zerubbabel's leadership, you have Ezra's leadership, and then you have Nehemiah's leadership. Why? Because the renewal of God's people was not about that moment. It was about the overall movement of God's plan. And they were just a moment. Their job was to be faithful to the moment that they were in as God's people in that instance. But it didn't end with them because after this, there's another after this. Why? Because it's bigger than one leader, than one group, than one church, than one people. This is about God's redeeming plan of humanity and we are called to be faithful to our part. 
And we are called to see the work be accomplished by the thing that has always accomplished the work and that is still accomplishing the work. We find it in chapter 7. Go backwards real quick. We're going to play a little game. So whenever you read the Bible, it's helpful to take note of words that repeat. So if you're studying on your own, you're like, okay, this word keeps showing up. This word keeps showing up. God's doing that to get your attention. And you go back to Ezra 7, and you look at verse 6. It's describing Ezra, and it says that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord of God of Israel had given. And then you get to verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. You get to verse 11, the commandments of the Lord and his statutes. Verse 12, the law of God. Verse 14, the law of your God, which is in your hands. Verse 18, the will of your God. 21, the law of your God. 23, decreed by the God of heaven. 25, the wisdom of your God in your hands. Twice, the king says, in your hands. Apparently, Ezra was sent with a physical copy of the law of God. He said, see, that thing, put that in the lives of God's people. That's our only hope. What gave them the courage to move and be obedient to God? It was the word of God. What convicted them of their sin and gave them a hope that God had more for them than the sin had for them? It was the word of God. What accomplishes the work of God? The word of God. We see the good hand of God mentioned five different times in this text because the good hand of God is on the lives where the good word of God leads those lives. You see, God's people moved by the word of God. And because chapter 10 says I have to apply this personally, I have to look back at it and say, okay, God, if this is what you do, after an incredible appointed leader says, church family, it's time to move. If we're going to be who God called us to be, we've got to relocate. We're going to build a new place of worship. We're going to fill it with lives and life change and joy, and we're going to do that. And God moves in an incredible way. And then we say, what happens after this? The word of God continues to work. That's what happens after this. What does the leader need to do after this? Ezra set his heart, verse 10, to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes. So I read this text. I say, God, what, what, what do you need from me? I need to study this word, I need to live this word, and I need to teach this word. And if I do that, I can gather around me leaders who can say, hey, let's wake up the apathetic that should be moving with us. Let's go get them and bring them together. And then we are going to pray, we're going to fast and beg God to move and go with us. We'll see God move for us. We will see God move with us. And if we let this word work, it will move in us to reveal our guilt and to reveal God's great goodness. And we can repent and turn and be the people of God that this world desperately needs to see. And it's not because of a leader. It's not because of a building. It's not because of a program or a place or a strategy or a tactic. It's because God is faithful. Church, in chapter 10, every individual has to respond. I am so hopeful and encouraged and excited for the future of this church because it was built, as Rick said, on the foundation of God's promises and his character that are unchanging. And God uses his unchanging word to change the world. And we get to be a part of that moving ahead. What is the word doing in your life? That's what I want to ask you to respond to. We're going to enter into a time of response, and maybe what you heard in here was that there is compromise in your life. 
Maybe what you heard in here is we say, come on, let's go, and you feel that bit of, I would go, but I'm really comfortable living like the world. Maybe what you heard is, hey, I'm here, Cody, I'm in, but I'm also behind the scenes just making some compromises that I thought were fine. You don't need a preacher to tell you God's better. You need his word. Believe it. Respond. Follow the Lord. Let's follow the Lord together. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. We're going to give you a chance to worship and respond as God leads. Father, I pray over this church family that we would do what you ask us to do every time we gather, to listen to your spirit guide and direct our hearts through your infallible word. God, we need you. And Lord, we love you and we choose to follow. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I do want to say this. If you are out there um, feeling like, well, man, well, I've got to know that word. I've got to figure out that whole word. I want to make sure you understand. John 1 tells us that the word became flesh. This word didn't leave you to try and figure it out. The word came to us as a person, Jesus Christ, who walked the earth, lived perfect, and he, was, he died on a cross. That if we put our faith in that death and resurrection in Jesus, that our sins are removed from us. The power, the penalty of sin, the presence of sin can be removed. And that only happens because we make Jesus the authority of our lives. It's not about authority of a book. It's about authority of a person, Jesus Christ. And so as you respond right where you're at to remove the compromise from your life, to return to the word, to follow wholeheartedly after seeking the Lord, maybe if you need to give the Lord your life and make him the authority, I want you to come forward and visit with me or one of the other pastors during this time. As you look up, raise your voices, sing with us, respond as God leads, and your pastors are here if you need us.